Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh, I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six oh, days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough to implement a high press and commit to your ethos of attacking football. Seemed to be the battle cry at yesterday's City-Liverpool match. It's a different kind of rivalry than we've been used to in the Premier League. More respectful, less spiteful, and maybe even all the better for that. Hi, Ken. Owen, how are you doing? Hi, Murph. Hey, Owen, how's it going? The friendly rivalry is going to be the theme of your report on sport a little bit later on, Ken. Yeah. But an initial reaction to yesterday, enjoy the game? Uh, How could you not? Who didn't enjoy the game, Owen? Yeah, I yeah, think we great. all, as a planet, were felt felt fortunate to be able to bathe in the reflected glory of that game. Wouldn't yeah. you say? Wouldn't you say that you felt I didn't you think had a little bit more pep in your step as you walked away from mm. that game? I didn't think of it in planetary terms, but you're absolutely right, Ken. Of course, uh, I should have looked at myself as a citizen of the Earth. Uh, yeah. You know, and the and the the as you say, the warm afterglow of that game yesterday. It was bloody good. The blue dot. Uh, just gleamed a little more bright, bright <laughs> a little more hopefully. After wow, you really did enjoy draw. the game. Don't you feel as though, you know? Uh, it just gave us a vision of what we could maybe be. You know, if we set anger aside, Owen, if we set fear aside, mm. you know, if we simply focused on the game and played football with our friends, you know, who's to stop us? Who can stop us? <laughs> Okay, well, we'll get into that in the report on sport and with Dion Fanning and Mark Critchley later in the podcast. First of all, a big thank you to all of you who've been buying tickets for the making of Where Is George Gibney for one in four. This is happening on April 20th with all proceeds going to that amazing charity who provide counselling for adult survivors of child sexual abuse. It's in the National Concert Hall in Dublin and we want to fill the NCH for one in four. We've had a really good response in the last couple of weeks, but we've got to drive on. We've got to keep going. We need need a full-on Klopp Liverpool-style approach to ticket buying employ a high line be aggressive mm. buy three or four if you can <laughs> take the take gamble you know what analogy. I mean just, yeah, just yeah. roll with it mm-hmm. so please get to secondcaptains.com or nch.ie and buy a ticket or two if you can uh, all the makers of the podcast will be there as well as the likes of Johnny Watterson Gary O'Toole Trish Kearney so it's going to be a really really special night and once again thanks for your generosity and please do support this great cause if you can and we will try to fill the NCH for one and four report on sport please Ken well Owen we've been talking about the friendly derby and let's get to that uh, after 
talking about some of the other things that happened. Mm. Some of the other things that happened, some spe- some things spectacular. Some I have to report, not very friendly. Uh, I think there were, I think certainly young Stephen Gerrard could take a leaf out of the books of Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola in terms of how the mind, mentality that he wants to send his team out uh, to play in Premier League matches. Aston Villa, you know, don't tread on me, appears to be uh, Villa's uh, philosophy under Stephen Gerrard. They went out, well, they will tread on you. Villa will, you know, just, just so you're clear on that, Villa's attitude is don't tread on me, but they will very much walk all over you with hobnail boots. And that's what Matty Cash did to Matt. Well, what Matty Cash did to Matt Doherty, he didn't walk on him. He, he plowed into him with his arse. In in one of the clumsiest tackles I've seen since the Pickford one on Van Dyke, it was the same type of thing, you know, where where like somehow a player, you know, you, you see a freeze frame and there's a guy who seems to be sitting on another player's leg just above the buckling knee. Mm-hmm. And that was what Matty Cash was doing to Matt Doherty. Out by the at least when Pickford was doing it, Van Dyke was maybe about to shoot on goal. You know, Pickford was at least, he was the last line of defence. This is out by the sideline. It's just an insanely violent uh, uh, tackle by just massively gratuitous force. Uh, Obviously, this is a guy, Cash, that is, who's out there going, you know, I'm going to show my manager over there, legendary 16 16 screws on the hip, um, former midfield uh, enforcer, Steven Gerrard, uh, that I, too, am a real man. I too, I'm a, I'm a manly man. I'm going to smash into this Spurs guy. You know, I don't even see a face. You know, the opponents, they have no faces. Mm. You know, I'm just going to smash into this guy and show him that he's been in a game. And actually, I'm going to bust his medial ligament. And he's no. going to be out of the game. He's going to be out of the game for uh, a minimum of 12 weeks. And all the momentum that he's built up uh, in recent weeks... Uh, with some performances for his club, all all the fitnesses, all, all, all the fitnesses, the fitness uh, that he's, this level of fitness that he's got to, uh, the way in which he finally managed to make himself relevant to Tottenham against like the massive skepticism of the entire, like the entire crowd at Tottenham had given up on Matt Doherty and over the past few weeks he had managed to turn that around with a sequence of performances, uh, goals, assists uh, and really good performances and looked as though now he might actually have a future in this team. And because Matty Cash wanted to show his manager, Stephen Gerrard, who, by the way, has 16 screws in his hip, so no one can cry about getting injured to a man who's got 16 <laughs> screws. You know? This, and where, this is where are those 16 screws? What? They're in where his hips. Six, oh, in, in his, his hips. hips. Sorry, yeah. Just, just, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Just, Every yeah. time he goes through one of those security scanners in the airport, it's like, <laughs> uh, sir... Uh, <laughs> sir, sir, please. Why uh, is there a Christmas jingle going on? Why is there <laughs> a Christmas jingle on? going on in our machinery here? You know, it's 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 your hip area, sir. Uh, we're going to have to take a closer look at your hip area. Look, um, it's very disappointing. It's very disappointing. But but I but I encourage you again to see how one thing leads from the other. When Jared was remember, Saka complained recently about the rough play of Aston Villa and how he was looking for more protection from the referee. Jared said, "Well, you know, uh, I've got sixteen screws. Don't come crying to me about rough treatment. That's fo- that's football." Uh, Jared sent his team out Aston Villa. It wasn't the only bad tackle to catch him. There, there was a few bad ones. There was a bad one on Kulisevsky as well, I think by Mings. Um, Kulisevsky got luckier than Doherty, didn't pick up a serious injury. But but the one f- flows from the other. 
You know, if you if you if you have got this attitude of first for it, the game is first and foremost a battle, a physical battle. We're going to go out there and win the battle by inflicting casualties on the enemy. <laughs> like, I mean, is that is that we're going out there to kill Germans? This seems to be the the basic philosophy of uh, you know, and um, it didn't work out for Villa in the end. I mean, I I uh, I think the the four nil scoreline to Tottenham was at least some measure of justice for Matt Doherty. Although you know, it is a toy. It's it is. It's you mentioned club, also country. Ken, I, I of course recently anointed him our best player. Mm. on the podcast <laughs> mm. uh, I think he's been absolutely brilliant for us as well after yeah. a, a tricky start where it's like how do you get him into the same team as Seamus Come all these sort of things and now he's just shown how good he is and obviously that's coincided with well actually hasn't he was doing that even when it, it wasn't quite happening at club level and now it has been going well from at, at a really you know really big Premier League club he's just uh, he's exactly what we need uh, at, at the moment to supplement all of our brilliant young players but yeah anyway well, listen he'll be he'll he'll be back as good as ever hopefully next season yeah he'll, he'll, he'll be back um, you know I just hope that, that by the time he gets back at Tottenham he hasn't been replaced you know what I mean that's that's kind of the bad luck of, of this uh, situation well I mean I, I, I call it bad luck but I, I think it's it's got a cause uh, anyway yeah, um, not alright yeah not, not great Villa won the XG if that's any consolation did they? they won the, they certainly did don't I mean, Gerard was banging on about how in the first half it's the best they've ever played, and so and it's the only time ever that he's come off a pitch at halftime, delighted with the one nil with with the performance in a one nil deficit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. CVG won the XG, lost the G though. Last nine games, lost six, won three. So mm. things not going all that well. <laughs> not going all that well at this point. I mean, how do you motivate Aston Villa at this stage? They're not going to get relegated. They're not going to achieve anything going up either. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, you don't come up. You don't come up against. I mean, you may have thought on that it was a son wonder show. Well, it was a son wonder show. Right? No, oh, incorrect. Actually, it was the yesterday's game was or Saturday's evening's game was all about Harry Kane. Oh, right. Happy to be your foil anyway. Um, <laughs> I mean, was he incorrect or could it also be a Harry Kane and Son uh, wonder show, no? Sure, Son scored a hat-trick, uh, cracking all three goals off the same tiny area of the post. I mean, I'm sorry, but that sounds like a wonder show to me. But what about the headers with which Harry Kane set up two of those goals? No, sorry, one of those goals. Oh, what yes, about- I loved it. What about the knockdown by Harry Kane? Honestly, I do not, I, I can't think of a single, of a time I've heard a, a co-commentator salivate so much over uh, an instance of play as Andy Hinchcliffe did over Harry Kane's knockdown to Kulisevsky for Kulisevsky. Kulisevsky, like, okay, so there's a ball forward. Kane sort of, he, he backed into the defender a little bit and, and made made sure that he would be the one who won the ball and headed the ball down to Kulisevsky, who all Kulisevsky has to do then is rampage forward with the ball, pass one defender, hold off another, and then shoot through that defender's legs and pass the goalkeeper on the far side. An absolutely, in my opinion, brilliant finish, but which was eclipsed in the mind of Andy Hitchfield <laughs> by the knockdown that Harry Kane had supplied to set Kulisevsky off. Similarly, uh, Harry Kane then headed the ball into an empty Aston Villa half for Son to run through onto, which which attracted equally rapturous Ah, reviews. that was a brilliant, that was a brilliant touch. It was a, he- it was like a header through ball. 
with perfect weight on it, perfect spin, perfect everything, which oh, I don't think that many players would have actually realised. Into the it. completely empty Aston Villa half, there was if that was, with, if there. was with a foot, a player would be saying, "Oh, come uh, be saying great pass." So when you can do, when you can control the ball like that with your noggin. I'm going to say, oh, that's and if that was with the foot and it was Harry Kane, certainly Andy Hinchcliffe would have been saying this. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine was like, "Who is this co-commentator? Is this Charlie Kane? Has, has Charlie <laughs> Kane managed to wangle himself uh, a job with Sky?" Uh, look, it's amazing, but you know it. Uh, it is an incredible. Well, uh, Harry Kane managed to wangle himself a job with Sky. That that is that is uh, that is true. Actually, he turned up at the <laughs> he turned up at the Masters coverage. He obviously got to Augusta, I guess, for Sunday for the final mm. round. Here he is. Mm. Here he is with his with his tip for the top. I'm going to go Cam Smith. What's your reasoning for it? I what do you think? He, he can make birdies, get on a get on a hot run on the back nine. Um, yeah, I fancy him to uh, be four or five under today and. Who knows? Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't quite happen for old Cam Smith there, but nice to see Harry Kane. Mm. It was at the involved, exact moment the that, that people who have a dual interest in both uh, Premier League soccer and uh, PGA Tour golf were thinking of switching over from <laughs> the City Liverpool coverage to the golf. So there was definitely a moment. Where, Hold on a second. What am I watching? Why are Butch Why are Butch Harriman and Harry Kane standing beside each other? That's what, what is Harry? Is Harry Kane what, a hologram? What's happened to my brain here? Has, has my brain just gone completely What is he uh, doing daft? there? What is he? It turns out, oh, well, this is the benefit of when you get knocked out of everything. Tottenham don't have to play again until April the 16th. Mm. So Harry Kane can... What is, it? what is he doing there? Ken, did you not watch any of the US Masters coverage? The walk down Magnolia Lane. Does that mean Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> I did not watch it. I, well, sorry, that's not true. I did actually stick it on in the background, but I wasn't paying any attention to it. That's okay. We'll, we'll, tell you, we'll tell you all about it in our second podcast today, Ken. Allow myself and Murph to walk you through it later. Mm. Um, so, we'll uh, walk you down Magnolia Lane, Ken. Don't yeah. worry about that. Another thing which I think we should uh, probably take note of is uh, a remarkable goal scored by Troy Parrott for MK Dons oh. against Crew. Troy Van Basten. Indeed, Aaron. Uh, I think I think everybody thought of Marco Van Basten. Well. <laughs> Okay. It, it was a slightly, it was a, you know, it was an angle, it was a shot, a volley at a somewhat acute angle, but it wasn't quite you know, Van Basten levels of trigonometry that had to just, be employed. Just in terms of Van Basten, you know, what, what makes a Van Basten goal so amazing particularly is the way that he's kind of, he's kind of running uh, as he strikes it or the ball sort of drops over his shoulder, you know, he does that. Whereas with, with Parrot, he kind of saw this ball coming a while back and was able to kind of maneuver himself into position, but then just hits it so sweetly in off the crossbar um, gives the goalkeeper no chance so that was uh, that was good I mean the Doherty business was, was ugly not amazing but, uh, mm. Troy Troy Parrott at least has, has started to score some nice goals um, what else is going on um, well I mean of course we're long overdue giving credit to Frank Lampard <laughs> because <laughs> even as the the vultures swarmed down to tear at Frank Lampard's still living flesh he leads, he masterminds his epic victory by Everton against uh, Manchester United, which I just, I mean, I was just thinking of Sean Dyche, Owen. Sean Dyche on Wednesday, I don't think not he's sure now had to win, to win a game, game lads. It's okay, was, Lampard spoke to him about that. Oh, Lampard spoke to him about it? Yeah, there was a line in Lampard, bizarre, he, he said, no, Sean didn't mean anything by that, we've spoken. Oh, right. So Lampard obviously gave gave Daichi an old an old tinkle an old bell just to see. Well, the call could have gone the other way. Could have gone the other way as well, on Yeah, it's, it's Dyche may have may have may have looked on that and said maybe that came across 
as a little I harsh. Do, I perhaps. doubt. I doubt that very much. I doubt that very much. I, although it is, it's interesting. Lampard. I I wouldn't be surprised by that to be honest. Because I mean, this is a guy who rang into Talk Sport that time to complain that they were disrespecting him, even though he 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 was going, even though there was a clear risk of him making a fool of himself before you know the nation, uh, as we often conceptualize these radio audiences, uh, because he was being disrespected. So when Sean Dyche. Uh, takes the piss out of him like that. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to, keep, to learn that Lampard had uh, taken exceptions out and had made a phone call just to set Daichi straight about a few things and uh, to remind him of who's won more Premier League matches uh, in their respective careers. But, um, yeah, I mean, just what a turnaround for Daichi. You know, from the, from the position on Wednesday night where you've beaten Everton and you've got all the momentum and you're looking at the fixtures thinking, yeah, we're going to do it. And then... They beat Man United. You lose to Norwich. You have also that unbelievable miss by Corne. You know, at at one nil, that's got to be at least a draw that you should that you should get. And you've, oh, I mean, it's just such a gut wrenching turnaround. Um, but one which I can't say Sean Sean Dyche didn't deserve after the way that he after the way that he was going on about Everton. Um, as for Ralph Rangnick, he was almost insulting his own players. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Rangnick, after the game, was like, well, look, you know, if you can't score against the team, if you can't score even one goal against the team, you conceded three against Burnley. I mean, you've got no chance. <laughs> I, I just thought that was an amazing thing to say. This is your team, Ralph. Like, you're, you're, not, a, you're not on, like, not the long, BT Sports goal show. No, not not mm. for long. Although he is supposed to be there for the next two No, two I don't think he will. I don't know. I don't I know. Don't There's think... already talk he won't be. It doesn't feel... Yeah, I don't think Do I don't think really he's your director of football no, or whatever no. consultant. I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. I, I get the feeling this. He feels as though there's there's actually not that much input there. But what happens? I mean, the match is, is chiefly memorable for Ronaldo smacking the phone out of the hand of a kid who apparently has dyspraxia and autism. Oh, I mean, no. this just gets just gets worse and worse. You know, uh, Ronaldo then puts something on his, you know, his Instagram about like when we lose, you know, we all feel it, like as though he's he's smashed this th- mm. this kid's phone to the ground. It wasn't because, quite like, it wasn't quite Will Smith's Oscar speech, but I mean, it was in the it's, same it's kind similar, of realm. Right? Yeah, a very. I'm sorry for caring too much. I, I mean, was like that crazy I'm, father Richard Williams yeah. defending his children. <laughs> you know, you're like, no, God, I'm no. sorry. I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter. <laughs> And offers him the chance to come and watch Man United, to which literally I've never seen the same joke made so many times in response to the, hasn't the kids suffered enough? I've never seen it so, like every, literally everybody in the world thought of the same joke when they saw that <laughs> offer from Ronaldo. Just buy the kid an iPhone 13 Pro Max. Come on, like, I mean, what do you, like, just, just buy him, buy him the iPhone 13 and forget it. I don't know. Um, we'll see. Uh, I mean, it's all going to change under Eric Ten Hag, apparently. Although, I don't know, I mean, I, I was reading, there was an article by uh, Bart Fleetstra uh, on The Guardian talking about Ten Hag, you know, one of these sort of manager profiles uh, mm-hmm. type thing, which included the, it starts off, Eric Ten Hag, the Ajax coach targeted by Manchester United, has a reputation as a control freak. He analyzes opponents from head to toe, even if he already played against them twice in the season. He sends his players video clips of opponents, provides tips, and is in constant conversation with them, even about which newspapers they should read. Or what time they should be in bed. And I just thought to myself, does this guy sound like he's going to go down well with this Man United squad? I'm not sure. But look, maybe the squad's going to look very different by the time, uh, you know, 
uh, when Eric Ten Hag has been there for not very long time. Anyway, we'll what talk about, about your that a bit later. F- your friendly rivalry again, Man City Liverpool? Well, I, I, I we haven't even mentioned Arsenal. <laughs> sorry. Oh, of course. Well, so Arsenal, many great, so many great things going Arsenal on. Arsenal just trying I mean, to not, keep sorry, everything apologies, alive. Apologies, Arsenal fans. Not great. You know what I mean? So many talking points, I should say. And Arsenal losing at home to Brighton is, is another one. Just trying to keep it keep it alive. You know, it's how have they managed? To, how have Arsenal managed to do this? Like just snatching failure from the jaws of success. You know, it just all looked as though. Oh God, I can't believe it. I, I don't believe it. Um, but you know, uh, it looks as though things will continue to be interesting into May. Um, anyway, on the friendly derby, the friendly derby, mm-hmm. um, the managers competing, each competing to say the nicest thing about the other, <laughs> the players, uh, close pals, you know, embracing and chatting, uh, on the, not seeming not to want to leave the field. So deep in conversation are they with their. Uh, with the, those who only moments before were rivals. The fans, okay, the fans hate each other's guts. Uh, they really despise each other. The wider situation uh, is charged and shot through with cynicism and whataboutery. Yes. Um, but as far as the participants go, this truly is the friendly rivalry. Um, uh, you know, I mean, and the standard of football you know, just in in that limited sense, it's it's clearly far beyond anything that's ever been seen before in English football, and is as good, in my opinion, as anything that's been seen, you know, in in Europe so far. Uh, in terms of the you know the all round qualities of these teams, um, and I do feel as though probably that has something to do with the fact that they're not kind of. Just pursuing vendetta to, uh, vendettas against each other. Oh the yeah, whole time. you think they're keeping clear heads, effectively. Well, I do and, think, and therefore uh, able to concentrate on the football. I do think so, and which is which is interesting because they sh- this actually should be really nasty, right? Like the whole the attitude between the clubs outside the the, the players and the actual participants is is really hostile now, mm. and they hate each other, right? And the the like the hatred between the fans is is, is as is is really pronounced and there's a kind of a political dimension to it that that like didn't used to really be part of english football or wasn't sort of wasn't so evident i I think in in previous sort of rivalries i mean there's always been like the you know the kind of just hostility just sort of tribal hostility or whatever but with this is it's kind of layered on with that like uh both of both of these teams weirdly sees they both see themselves as like the insurgent, the underdog in the rivalry. Um, I mean, while both see the other as representing a corrupt uh, elite or the corrupt sort of power that rules the game and must be brought down, which is quite an unusual situation for them to sort of have this mirror image um, thing going on. Like for Liverpool, like City have obviously, you know, bought their success you know, they're they're like a, an oil state disguised as a sports institution. You know, they've warped the the kind of fabric of the sport beyond recognition. You know, they bludgeon their opposition um, into submission with expensive lawyers. You know, oh sorry, the statute of limitations expired on that. You know, this kind of stuff. <laughs> there was more. There was more of these stories in in Der Spiegel just last week. You know what I mean? Whereas for City, actually, Liverpool are the the evil establishment like these are the you know the cartel as they call them the they are the faded 
uh, aristocracy, the elite of an earlier generation trying desperately to cling on to their unearned and undeserved privileges and keeping down the, the young uh, and you know strong contender Manchester City. Um, I mean, look, people can bring themselves to believe anything. I mean, there's quite a lot of Russians who, who think their army is liberating Ukraine from Nazism, apparently. So, uh, you know, you should never underestimate the plasticity of the human mind. Uh, but it is the case that both of the fanciers see themselves as righteous offenders and the other club as representing a kind of evil, like a kind of a corruption, um, uh, you know, which... which uh, has no place, has no place at the top level of the game. Uh, so in that context, it is actually even more remarkable that things have that this has not contaminated what happens on the field yet. I mean, you saw, like, I don't know if you saw the interview uh, Foden did on Sky before the game. Uh, and Foden, yeah. like, I mean, Foden's very young, you know, he, he doesn't give necessarily the the best interviews you know he's kind of he's 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 a kid but you kind of realize how young he is when you see him doing these uh but they asked him at one point about the remember the goal he scored the one in the other two all draw the season the first game at anfield and mm. he when he was talking about the game he did he got this like dreamy look in his face <laughs> did, did you see it no no i didn't i didn't see this interview no he it, it, he literally it was like he suddenly kind of he he was suddenly back there in the game and he and he, he like started to smile just to, just and was talking about what an amazing it was such just such an amazing game to play in you know like it was just kind of he was just sort of remembering it so fondly like oh wow like I got to sort of participate in that I haven't like I can't really remember this uh, the, but you see this from a lot of participants in this game this is why I'm talking about you know our our blue planet you know just gleaming with it with with an extra azure hope. Um, for Van, Van De Bruyne, rather Van De Bruyne, uh, De Bruyne after the game, uh, they're like, "Oh, you seem to be talking to Virgil for a while." Yeah, you know, I know Virgil. Me and Virgil, our, our kids go to school together. Um, you know, they like to play together. So you know, we were just having a chat. Like Klopp before the game had been going on about how, you know, uh, maybe after we retire, me and Pep can just meet up and talk for hours about. Different, different things we saw in different games. All this kind of stuff. It's like actually almost nauseating, like how much they seem to like each other. Now, partly this is maybe because, you know, for the players, certainly they, more than players of earlier generations, well, to, to the same extent as players of earlier gen generations, but in a different way, they, they're, all, they're part of the same kind of milieu. Like they're part of the same uh, tiny elite class. So De Bruyne and, and Van Dyke's kids go to the same school. Did, did you think that was a bit strange? Not I mean, really. I mean, Liverpool and Manchester aren't uh, a million miles away from each other and I'd say there are only so many super exclusive schools in exactly, that, that's in that the school reason. belt where they might go, you know. That's the thing. That's the thing, right? Whereas, you know, um, their equivalents in, say, the, the 80s, you know, their kids probably aren't going to like the most expensive school in like the the Northwest. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, they they're probably a lot of them were probably going to like local schools, so they wouldn't necessarily been meeting up outside the school gates. You know what I'm saying is membership of this tiny, uh, super uh, wealthy uh, club um, means that they're you know they're kind of all friends uh, in a way that previous generation uh, previous generations of players, although they were kind of in the same class you know they were they were they were kind of quite similar in in terms of you know their income and all that they would they weren't necessarily different from everyone else around them you know what i mean yeah. uh, and i think that gives the players maybe something in common the managers meanwhile have got i mean these are the top two managers in the world 
right? Like, see the way Klopp is always like, Pep is the best coach in the world. You know, he just keeps saying that, which is kind of an unusual thing. Like, I, know, I never remember, you know, like Alex Ferguson would never say that about Arsene Wenger. Wenger would never say that about, about Ferguson. You know, Mourinho would never say that about Guardiola unless it was sarcastic. You know, unless it was like, oh, Guardia, uh, UNICEF, Guardiola, you know, some, some, some nonsense like that, right? He would never just say, this guy's the best. But like, it's easy, it's easier for Klopp to say that, given that he's got like, uh, he's won two FIFA Manager of the Year awards recently. You know what I mean? Like, it's easier to say, oh, that guy's the best when you yourself have been garlanded. Uh, with accolades, you know, and didn't make it any easier for Ferguson to say about Wenger, though. Even sorry, even though Ferguson had all the accolades, yeah, he still I mean, like Ferguson, nice about you know, had, yeah. you know, won everything dozens of times, and it still didn't mean he was he was comfortable enough to say anything positive about anyone that he had to meet more than once every two or three years. I mean, I remember him being being very nice about Marcello Lippi, but I mean, literally no other manager. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, he because he, I think it, obviously Wenger gave Ferguson the itch. But a lot of that had to do, I think, with the way that Wenger was like faded by the by the press, you mm. know. And and actually, when you think about it, the things that they were that they were sort of um, you know celebrating him for were things like, oh wow, he speaks like three languages, or oh he's got a degree in economics, you know. Which actually we, they're we, just we, praising we, him. Yeah, hmm? we couldn't even understand Alex Ferguson's English. Yeah, well, that's what they would say about Ferguson. Mm. Uh, and you know, so they were just praising Wenger for being middle class, you know. Whereas, whereas, uh, you know, and Ferguson, well, you know, I, I never get these easy wins, and uh, I think he really resented that. Like, so you you have these this sort of resentments underlying that, and they they were Ferguson particular. Ferguson was the instigator of all the bad, of of most of the kind of nastiness in that rivalry. I feel, I think, I, I think, because he sort of felt. Maybe it was maybe it was a calculating decision on some level that like you know the more we kind of up the ante, the more we sort of psychologically pressurize them with like uh, physical intimidation, psychological intimidation, that the that will play into our hands because we're we're stronger in that sort of sphere of the game. Like they don't want that, you know. They would they want to get the ball down and play, you know. Uh, maybe there was a calculation involved, but al- although maybe the calculation was also just there justifying the fact that Ferguson hated and resented Arsene Wenger wanted wanted to grind him under his boot. I think there was a bit of, there was a bit of that as well. One way or the other, uh, Guardiola and Klopp have managed to not let this creep in, and I do feel as though the games have been a lot better for it. Uh, in that, you know, a lot of the games between these teams have just been absolute classics, and the two this season so far, and there's going to be at least one more. And there could be a Champions League final as well. Um, and okay, maybe maybe they'll make a fool of us yet. Uh, but I so don't know. Far, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's just that they that they don't that they don't hate each other at the respect of it towards each other. I just think they're both so committed to a certain way of playing. <clears throat> well, maybe Wenger was, but Ferguson wasn't. Ferguson did often put out some exciting teams, and he often put out dour teams, and he put out whatever team needed to be put out to Phil get Neville a in midfield in against Arsenal. Uh, for yeah. like two or three seasons in, in a row, you know, like whereas you, yeah. Whereas you see what Klopp is doing, and we know what Pep does, and Klopp is is as devoted to his his attacking football. I mean, I was quite struck by uh, K- 
Keenan and Neville afterwards, well, all the all the pundits afterwards, how amazed they were with with Liverpool in particular for just going after, for just for just doubling down on their high line, yeah. for not dropping back, even as they're getting swamped. By the way, in the first ten minutes, this looked bad for Liverpool. Oh, yeah. They were absolutely rattled, and that's certainly the way it looked. And yet they kept doing exactly what they have been doing, and, and what they do is really exciting. So um, maybe I suppose you could argue, Ken, and your argument is one stems from the other that when you're not spending all your energies <laughs> getting whacking the heads off the other team then you can actually focus a little bit more on playing football but it's not just like playing nice football it's also where you position yourself on the pitch and having the sort of having the mindset to not just retreat 5, 10, 15 yards as Keane said he would have done as Neville said he would have done in their playing days that they, they couldn't get over how uh, the bravery a different type of bravery than what we maybe associate with the more old school rivalries yeah, absolutely, and this is what this is what everybody um, in the past would have done. It's like, oh, you know, they're getting in behind. We need to we need to drop back. You know, Tony Adams would have would have you know shouted, put it, sent out the shout, drop back, John Terry. You know, these kind of players would have would have done that. And Liverpool are saying, no, we're going, we're <laughs> push up. We haven't gone high enough. You know, if 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 uh, Joe Maddop had only pushed up, then Gabriel Jesus wouldn't have been able to score that goal. You know what I mean? The, the they, they, line, they didn't push up far enough. Yeah, the line saying. wasn't the line wasn't high enough. Yeah. You know, I mean that's that's what went wrong there. I mean, like Guardiola was obviously the, there was the whole overthinking it thing last week, and he did overthink it uh, for this game and came up with a few stupid tactics, as he would put it. And one of those stupid tactics was picking Gabriel Jesus for the first time since um, New Year's Day. Gabriel Jesus plays really well. Uh, scores a goal, uh, nearly scores another, uh, generally puts in a, a terrific performance and justifies his selection. Um, the other stupid tactic was this really direct sort of um, diagonal game that City started to use. Like they were just, it was such a contrast to the uh, to the previous game, City's previous game against Atletico. Remember when they when they were playing against the five five. Zero, mm-hmm. the, no strikers, five midfielders, and five defenders, and and these guys were not coming out at all. So it was, it was basically completely the opposite challenge. You're playing against a team that's going to try and come up to halfway whenever, um, whenever they can, and so sit. Remember, we were talking the the pullback situation in that in, in that Atletico game when City City were trying to score from pullback or or City City's players in the middle nobody was sort of attacking the line that the defenders were in nobody was sort of going for a cross there everyone was sort of loitering for a pullback because they didn't think there was any way of actually winning a header or you know beating one of the defenders uh, to this this game was actually the complete opposite there was a moment when uh, Foden got away down the left. I mean, there was yeah. one, of, one of many incidences, and Foden actually pulled the ball back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you remember the moment I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I remember the moment because of his reaction. He's looking around, going, "Where was everybody?" Oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? There yeah. was nobody there, and it was it was an exact position where a Man City player comes in and scores a goal usually, but there was yeah. nobody there. And it was Sterling and Sterling and Jesus were both attacking the space behind the defense because I mean that's what that's basically what City were doing in this game. Um, you know, they were, it was just the way they were playing at the edges of Liverpool's formation, you know, just sort of, sort of slinging the ball over and then around just the edges of the of the defensive line um, was just was brilliant to see. I mean, I mean, from a Liverpool, from Liverpool's point of view, really worrying because City should have scored several goals. I mean, you know, there was the Alisson made an unbelievable save before De Bruyne even scored the opening goal. 
Um, there was a shot off the post as well in the first half. There was a couple of ones where the defenders are just, like Robertson just about reached one to deflect it away from, I think, Jesus coming in at the back. Um, Matip put another one out of play. You know, there was lots and lots of these types of moments because they just couldn't really prevent the balls being played through from from midfield. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the, the first goal came from this sort of long period of... of uh, Liverpool being rattled, which started when basically De Bruyne managed to just get around Thiago. And he sort of just, it was it was weird. As soon as De Bruyne got the other side of Thiago, like got in behind Thiago, and this is in the Man City half, you knew that this was a, a serious chance of scoring. Like it was that quick, like the instability was that obvious. Uh, you know, that's all that needed to happen. And that was when the, you know, the ball came across and Alisson made that save, but a couple of minutes, you know, a minute later, De Bruyne had scored anyway. Um, what was really amazing about the game was the, was the, the most amazing one of the game was Liverpool's second equaliser. It was like, <laughs> I can't, I can't, you know, because at the end of the first half, it did look as though, well, you know, City should have won that by more and would it should have won that half by more and now look like they're going to go on, go on and win this game and instead immediately it was two all and and it was as though for the for the first few minutes of that half it was as though the pattern of the game had just reversed it was suddenly Liverpool were making chances and missing them and City didn't really know what to do and I do feel as though towards the end of the game they kind of the fact that they knew they're playing again on Saturday started to feed into it and I think they maybe sensed that they might be playing again because look at this right City have to play Atletico in the week, this week. It's it's not an easy game, but they're so much better than Atletico. I think they are going to get through. And then if they get through and it's Real Madrid in the semi-final, I would not give Real Madrid a rat's chance against no, Manchester City. You didn't give him a rat's chance last week, I will I will not give Real Madrid a rat's chance. Whatever a rat's chance is. A rat's against chance. City. Against Man City. Not a rat's chance. So... What I'm saying, what I'm saying to you is, if City get through against Atletico, you can pencil them in for that final in Paris. You can pencil them in. Ken, you're what? so careful usually not to offer up these hostages to fortune. Yeah. But your I mean, Real Madrid, the, this, your Real Madrid, Real Madrid are hilarious. Is, it's taken over your life, Ken. But continue. They do not have if they, if they if they get through against Chelsea. Who don't forget? Don't forget. Uh, we have to play against Chelsea. Six mm. nil uh, winners. Um, Real Madrid, literally a team that gets psychologically better as the Champions League goes on. You know, it's the opposite of... Well, they lost in the semi-final last season, I think. Well, yes, Ken, but, you know, they've won a few. I would, I, Owen, I do not give them a rat's chance. Okay, there's, yeah, a rat. I mean, I've, I've, rat's chance, yeah. no, no rat's chance. Is a rat's chance even a phrase, by the way? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. Kent has made it up. You just said know. it the first time, but now you've just kept repeating it. I don't I mean, know. I was I prepared don't. to let it slide the first time, but a rat's chance is... I wouldn't no, give I mean, a rat's I chance say, against City. I would say there are a lot of situations where you wouldn't back a rat to get out of, and yet a rat, like, is there a better a member of the animal kingdom than a rat to get out of a seemingly impossible situation? I mean, that's basically the entire raison d'etre of the how did a rat get in here and then yeah. how did a rat get out of here yeah, yeah. are two it's of the plucky, main things you say about rats plucky and resourceful but I yeah. wouldn't give them as I said even that much of a chance <laughs> in, in that semi-final assuming it is Manchester City assuming they don't blow it assuming they don't blow it uh, in their second leg against Atletico which it would have to be some meltdown I think 
considering how much better than Atletico they are, which is like they're, they're worlds, they're planets ahead of Atletico Madrid. So, and then it's back to, back to play Liverpool again on Saturday. And I wonder, will Jack Grealish get a run out in the cup? It must, it is a bit embarrassing at this stage, isn't it? For, for Grealish. <laughs> like, it's a bit soul destroying, you know, joining the big club and finally getting to watch these big games between big teams and feeling a part of it, feeling very much a part of it. Uh, as he sits there in a little club tracksuit. Uh, and okay, he did get on the pitch in this one, although ultimately didn't manage to do it. But yeah, I feel as though that, that FA Cup semi-final, he, if he's not starting that, he's going to want to, he's going to be, uh, be a little bit disappointed. Very pleased to say we can speak to the Liverpool manager, Jurgen Klopp now. Joining us, what did you like about your team's performance tonight? Everything. Did I, did I hear right there, Mr. Keane said um, we had a sloppy performance tonight? No, because I could hear you already. Did he say that? Cannot be this game. Sorry. Jürgen Klopp said the other day, but Man City had a break because of the virus when their game was called off against Man City. I think they missed two days training. They are making a lot of excuses to meet up in bad champions. This was a sloppy performance tonight. I just want to not only hear it, because I'm not sure if I heard it right. Maybe he spoke about another game. But about this game tonight, there's nothing bad to say. Jorgen Klopp said there, yeah, maybe the goalkeeper's feet was cold. This excuses after excuses. Talking about Liverpool, there are people keep telling me Liverpool's a great club and a huge club. Well, keep performing like that, it'll be another 30 years before you win the league title. No, can you hear me? Sloppy. Yes, I don't know. Yeah, look at the speaker and only heard the word sloppy. That's in that game tonight, and then it was the wrong you need, one. But you need to hear the rest of it. We got the unfanning of the currency and Mark Critchley was at the Etihad for the Independent to um, witness a bloody good game of football. Dean, I'll go to you, I'll go to you first. What did you make of yesterday? Aye, it was outstanding. It was um, uh, one of those sort of visions of football um, that you kind of just wonder at the end of it how it just the relentlessness of it keeps going. Mm. The, the sense all the time that there were you know it, it is it is so it is so different you know what 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 Liverpool and Manchester City do and you know there there are players on on the on the, the team on both teams that I kind of think you know if you you know isolate them like like Trent Alexander-Arnold Phil Foden who if you said to like English people you know when Eng- when England was bemoaning their lack of kind of you know technically technically gifted footballers 20 or 30 years ago if you if you showed them these players, they would think they were sort of, you know, some sort of artificial intelligence created. You know, they wouldn't <laughs> believe the things that they're capable of. And then their teams are kind of shaped in around those kind of those traits. And, you know, that sense that any time a team gets on the ball, something is going to happen is, you know, for these huge games, that's quite, like that is kind of quite, quite extraordinary. And it was just... Uh, it was it was kind of exhausting watching it. Like you know, it was kind of like you couldn't. It was that, that that cliche about football at the highest level that you know you can't relax for a second as a player. You couldn't as 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 a spectator. You couldn't just stop and think nothing's going to happen now because at any moment anything could happen. Well, what about as a as a journalist at the game? Were you able to relax for a second, Mark? Uh, no, it was one of those where uh, I just ended up writing something that was a completely preconceived notion that had no relation to the game. Yeah, um, it was a game. Yeah, well, it was just you know it, it was a game that I think like I, I think it had a lot of hype about it, um, but it, it lived up to that. And in the, as Dion saying, in the manner that the two teams were playing, it was something that it, you felt like it could change at any minute. And although there was long spells of the game where. 
I was kind of thinking, well, City are on top here, and and if anything, this kind of speaks to what I think are the, the the truth of the rivalry really that for all the all the points that they've accumulated and how close they've been for over these past four seasons, maybe City are just that little bit better. And I thought I thought that was the kind of the pattern of the game, but then as soon as you started to think that, and as soon as you wanted to start writing that, um, Liverpool would just turn around and hit them with a counter punch, and it was and and that's been. That really is the true story of the rivalry over these last four years, isn't it? It's that just that when you think that one seems slightly ahead of the other, the other one reels them back in, and that was the story yesterday. Um, is it? I mean, City are that are that bit better, Mark? I mean, what like they're one three hundred thirty eighth better than Liverpool? I mean, this is like three hundred thirty nine points to three hundred thirty eight since since twenty eighteen. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, what, what on what basis are you saying that the team that's got three hundred thirty nine points? is that much better than the team that's got 338. Well, there's three league titles, isn't there? And there's only one for Liverpool. Yeah, but you know, we, we all know that the, the league titles are kind of just uh, accidents of, of, uh, of, the, of the fixture list. You know what I mean? When you see, when you see the, a long-term sort of trend like that, I mean, there is nothing between these teams. No, but I think that if you, if you think about those seasons, there's been so that, I mean, 2019 they obviously ran each each of them extremely close. That's the case this season, and then you have the two in the middle, which are kind of, which are kind of anomalies really, uh, in that they're both really heavily affected COVID seasons. Um, one's interrupted and one's played behind closed doors. And so, no, I take your point. Look, I'm, obviously, when these two teams come come and play against each other. Um, you don't you don't know what to expect, and at any given moment in the game, like I'm saying, like it, it seems like it can swing one way or another. And I don't think I don't I really don't think it's clear that there's any one team in the ascendancy over the other. That's not what I'm saying. But you, like watching that game yesterday, I th- I feel like you just felt that there's a, there's a reason why City are that one point ahead, and they ha- they have got now got their destiny in their own hands, which is a huge thing in this rivalry as well, which can't we can't really underestimate because. You know, it's not like Arsenal United in the past where you'd look at the running and everyone's looking at these runnings now and they're saying, oh, well, you know, in the past you would say, well, they might drop points here or they might drop points there or but then maybe the other team will drop points here. In this, you're just looking for where's the one draw? Where's the one draw out of the 14 games that they've got to play between them that's going to decide it? And that's, that's completely changed the complexion of it. And so, no, there really isn't that much of a gap between them. But... I, I, you know, there was points yesterday where I just felt like oh, City could really put them away here, and I think that, I think that Pep felt that as well. At the end, he came in and he said, you know, I, I think we've had a missed opportunity. Here. We've we've left them alive, and um, and there was, I, I think City will have walked away from that yesterday, slightly disappointed that they didn't put a bit more distance between them. Do you do you agree with us, Dion? Do you think City will be disappointed? I, I would have thought after that game, City would be the happier of the two teams because they were the ones that had. You know, Liverpool needed to win, really, to to go ahead of them, and by not losing, City retained the advantage. Yeah, they do, and because, as Mark says, of that sense that both teams can win all their remaining games, it does seem like quite a big advantage, and that is one of the things, again, that has changed a lot, because, you know, again, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, if you said there was seven games left, it's an awful lot of games, Um and you would expect it to be, you know, a lot could happen. Whereas now, as in uh, 2019, you know, you, you do think the teams are just going to keep, the, both of them will just keep going uh, and win their games. Um, but 
I think at the same time, I think the fact that City had all the chances, Liverpool, clung, like the first half, like I thought, you know, and we've talked about it in terms of a brilliant game, and the first half, the brilliance all came from one side. Like it was one of those halves where you thought... and I, I, would, have, I would say, I thought Liverpool scored a quite brilliant goal in that half while City yeah, scored fantastic a, goal. City got yeah. a, a deflection and a set piece. But, they, but there, there was that sense of Liverpool failing to really implement what they want to do, which is to be as, as as aggressive and as adventurous as they were, but their adventure and, and aggression was actually um being kind of undermined and being and being slightly there was a bit of doubt I think in their heads about it. So they were actually uh not as um either midfield was a little bit was was wasn't wasn't um on the front foot enough, I thought uh you know, because of players, because you're up against players like Foden, um, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold wasn't as as brave as and, and as as actually it wasn't going wasn't further. He wasn't forward enough as he as he would normally be. And you know that again, you can see it even. I know he was on the other side, but you can see it for the for the goal for the second goal where he's he's kind of hanging back. And I think normally one of the things that's interesting about Liverpool a lot of time is that actually. Uh, it's not a back four that's almost playing the offside trap. It's the two central defenders, um, which uh, is very risky. But it also means you've only relying on two people to be to to be in uh, in sync rather than rather than four. Um, and yeah, Liverpool scored a brilliant goal when they went, and then that that again spoke to like what what unfolded during the second half. That when he, whenever either side got the ball for any period of time, something happened, and that was when Liverpool got the ball. They did score that goal, but I do feel that it did speak to, and this is where I would like take Mark's point of answer. Like there is one side with a huge advantage over the other, and that is Manchester City over Liverpool. In terms of the financial the financial weight they can put into, they've only um, managed to get one the odd. They're 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 leading by what the odd point in yes, I know. That, but that but that you know we, there may be many many reasons that uh, we can look to for that. It doesn't hide the fact that they have a huge financial uh, advantage over Liverpool, and uh, it does speak to the job that Liverpool have done that Jurgen Klopp has done that it is one point. Because you know um, that the, the the fact of their closest will be used by those who refuse to see that that huge financial advantage is there, and how that has been uh, how that has been utilised is something that we will will talk about long after these seasons are over. We look, we saw the Der Spiegel story last week again. Um, those advantages um, are there. The, you know, and I think <laughs> the fact that Liverpool have been so exceptional doesn't mean that that it doesn't that that doesn't exist, but it is there, and that's why there are times when Manchester City can seem like um, you know the team that you know, that nobody can stop them. Liverpool can fe- look like a- a somebody who's just trying to hang on in there, and for the long periods of the first half, that, that that's what it felt like. But because of what Klopp and Liverpool have done. They, they were able to, and the quality they do have, they were able to kind of stay in it and come back and, you know, score the goals that they did score. Mark, how would you define this rivalry between the two teams at the moment? If we, if we think of, for example, the great Arsenal-Man United rivalry being defined by seething toxicity and hatred between the players on both teams, how would you define this one? 
Um, yeah, well, this is this was my preconceived idea. <laughs> so thanks, thank you for asking. Um, no, I, I think that um, that it's it, it, like I said before, it's a very different rivalry to that United and Arsenal one. In the character of the results, like I'm saying about the running, um, this need to be perfect that everybody knows. But I think beyond that, um, you know, it's it's kind of like. It's, it's it's a very twenty first century rivalry in the sense that when you, you, if you think about United Arsenal, you're talking about fights in the tunnel and Peter Gate and things like that. Um, what kind of flashpoints do we really have between these two? And like the, one of the main ones I could come up with is is an alleged data hacking of a scouting system. You know that is <laughs> that that is that is the big kind of uh, uh, set point between the two of them. And um, and that's I think it speaks to the fact well, that well there was the, there was the city bus and the team bus getting attacked and stuff like that outside the f- football side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was that. There was there was um, Sterling and Joe Gomez got into a little thing at an England camp um, after after one of the games. But I mean, in in terms of like. A kind of between between the two clubs, if you like, you know, that was the supporters. It was players on England duty. Between like a sustained thing between the two clubs, you don't really see it in the games either. I, I don't know what the red card record is, it, but off the top of my head, I can't think of one that's been certainly in the past in the past series of them over the last few years, not a significant one anyway. So there's never been that kind of edge and that element to it. Even though I think on a level behind the scenes between the two clubs, there is there is that rivalry is certainly keenly felt. Um, and it is as much one that is fought off the pitch as on it, and so in that sense, you know, it's it's a it's of a completely different character to the um, to the, the United Arsenal one in that you don't quite see it in 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 the in the aggression and the you know mud and blood out on the out on the pitch. And is is that better or worse? Do you think? Do you prefer this type of rivalry, or did you prefer the old school? I prefer the the Arsenal United one. I think there's something slightly a bit more romantic about that. It might just be the nostalgia of it. Um, but there's more personality to it. I think there's a little bit more character to it as well. But this is of a different character in that, you know, <laughs> it's almost as as though, um, like I'm saying about those runnings, where you, you would look at a United or an Arsenal running at the end of the season and you would say they could drop points here, they could drop points there. With these, it's almost like, it's like Deion saying, it's like it's artificial intelligence. It's like they're just not flawed individuals. They're, they're almost perfect constructions of football teams that... Um, put on a product and a quality of football that I think is better than those games in the past. Um, certainly from a from a technical standard, and it's just about your personal preference whether you actually like a, a little bit more aggression, a little bit more um, I don't know, yeah, cerebral, yeah, more cerebral like this, yeah. But I mean, this these are the this series of games have consistently been the best. I mean, no teams in English football have ever produced a series of matches like this. I mean, what, what actually were the great Man United Arsenal games that we that when we when we look back? What, what were they? The FA Cup semi final when Giggs scored the the goal in extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one where Roy Keane scored two goals in in and, and finished the league title race in was it August nineteen ninety nine? <laughs> that was I mean that wasn't great. Well, I mean it wasn't wasn't great for the for the title race. Uh, you know, there was one I remember when Patrick Vieira smacked one in from the edge of the box. Uh, over the head of the goalkeeper, maybe David Platt scored in that game. That was that was a while back. Um, there was one where Fabian Barthez threw in a couple of goals. I mean, there was one where Ryan Giggs knocked the ball over the bar from from the edge of the box and uh, facing an open goal. What are we talking about? Like, what what is this great rivalry that we're that we're looking back on? Well, I think you're forgetting like what what they were, they were great. You're forgetting the one word narrative. Uh, Manchester United and Arsenal, they 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 they, they were almost were the originals in terms of narrative like I remember like so the games almost became 
uh, like, and this is the the huge change. The games almost became secondary to the the subplots around them. And I can remember so often, um, like you know, going to Arsene Wenger press conferences on a Friday, and it was you know they were time they were Alex Ferguson just said this Arsene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what do you think about this, Arson? Yeah. Uh, and you know, the same thing was happening in Manchester, and that was the that was the rivalry. The rivalry was, uh, it was all around. All, it was managers, but it was all around the game. It was all the games then became something that were the kind of pivot points in in the kind of narrative in, in in a sort of our plot plot developments in a narrative that actually took place did you actually red, you know, see did you see the the thing that happened in Klopp's press conference um before this game where the journalist started a question by saying Pep Guardiola says he overthinks things and Klopp actually interrupted the journalist to say it was ironic you know, come yeah, on, yeah. Does, no, does nobody get this? I mean, he said, it, he said, ironically, I overthink. So he was actually correcting, uh, he was correcting the <laughs> journalist in case there was a risk. There might be about to be a twist applied to something that Pep had said. But, which but you might prefer make this, Kev. You, you, pre- you, 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 you prefer this kind of right, the rivalry that we're seeing now from City. The football, the games are infinitely better. The games are infinitely better. And I wonder if the games are better in part because everyone isn't, isn't functioning with the lizard brain. I mean, even if you think about when, when, when Guardiola was the manager of Barcelona, there was this, this rivalry with Mourinho, which was also really poisonous. And the games, even though like the game, the game contained like seventy percent of the best players in the world, it was they still were usually quite bad games because it was just fouling, it was like screaming at the referee, um, you know, it was broken, broken play, things didn't really get, you know, Messi scored a couple of great goals in one of the, in one of the games, the Champions League semi final. Otherwise, you know, there wasn't a lot there, and I and I feel as though. The, the atmosphere, which is like not actually just laced with anger and hatred, just, just hyped up, to, you know, actually does help the teams to express themselves in much better football. I, I, think, that, and I think the managers understand that and that's what they want. And on, on that clock clip, like I can remember, and I'm pretty sure it was to do with United, but I can remember a, a Wenger press conference where a journalist a journalist turned on another journalist at the end of it because the, the second journalist had asked for clarification about something Wenger said, which, you know, in its first in its first reading was you know, hugely inflammatory and would have kind of, you know, given a kind of weekend of headlines about whatever Wenger had said about Ferguson. The journalist kind of innocently, another journalist innocently asked, you know, what could I just clarify what you meant there, Arson? And Arson clarified it and didn't mean the kind of mm. the uh, inflammatory reading. At which point, after Minute Wenger left the room, the first one journalist said, What the fuck are you doing that for? <laughs> we had a headline. And, um, you know, so that's how it was all. And I think the media has changed too. I think it's, it's it, and people see more, of, people see more of things managers don't see everything, but they see a lot more of what managers are saying now. And, you know, the other managers, like Klopp, that being a good example, that clip is everywhere. What Pep said, that clip is everywhere. So Klopp is actually informed of it. He's not being, to- he's not sitting there being told. Uh, Pep Guardiola has said this, Jurgen. What do you think? He's he's actually seen it. So it has changed. But ultimately, I think the managers too want something where they can actually express themselves, and you see that in you know, as Ken said, that's that's kind of. Their, their, their approach to, to everything around the game is secondary to what they want to see on the field. What about a poison pen, Critch, over there? 
what do you make of this? Um, you still you still prefer the the let's I'm going to throw pizza at this um, at the elderly manager of Manchester United approach. <laughs> well, why can't you have both? That's what I asked. You know, why can't why can't why can't I don't think it's necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, like it is though, isn't it? It actually is mutually exclusive. This is the thing. If if everyone is really wound up and losing their head, they can't play football on the, on that level. No, no, I take that point, but I like for just one of them just to boil over and into a twenty-two man brawl would be pretty fun. I think just just once. You know, like you don't even need that many. You only need one instance in in a long history of of the rivalry in order to give us something to remember. As you as you rightly point out, given naming all those United Arsenal games, they weren't up to much. So, you know, I think there is a certain power of nostalgia around United Arsenal, and also, you know, I, I when this debate was kind of going on at the back end of last week, I kind of thought this is this is actually a, a it's a product of how almost little there is really to say about Liverpool and City anymore because. We've seen just brilliant football from, and it, it, honestly, it is quite difficult to try and preview these games now because you think, how, what's the new angle on on something that we've seen for four years now that has always been always lived up to expectations and will seem to continue to do so. I, I would say actually, um, maybe the flaw the flaw in my theory here is the best United Arsenal game. Well, it it now comes to to my head was probably the four uh, two, like the last one. The, the final, the closing episode in the series the, in in 2005 when Manchester United won four. And that was the, I'll see you out there. <laughs> that was the that was the one where they actually got was, fight in the it, tunnel. It was pretty epic. And also, you know, there, were, there was the odd decent goal scored, Ken, and some, some forward passes played and stuff. You're kind of, <laughs> I don't know, you're sort of making I mean, there's it out as though there was no dives, football on the pitch. Some, yeah. pe- some good missed penalties. I, I wonder if the rivalry will be as cerebral once they've played possibly once twice more in, in, in quick That's succession it. yeah 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 and I was going to warn Mark that I'm sure you're aware Mark that you have got another preview to do probably later on this week so we'll we leave that there for now what about Everton United Dion um, it was a, I thought it was a great weekend there was, there was a lot of subplots even before we got to the big game on, Saturday, on Sunday and one of them was Frank Lampard he's, he's, he's done it Dion they're going to be alright <laughs> they they <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so sure. They probably are, um, but uh, it, again, well, it was. It was a great result for for Lampard and for Everton, um, and it was. Uh, is it even terrible for Manchester United? Like maybe we maybe want to talk about Everton first, but it was. You can't. Uh, you can't talk about that game without just talking about the kind of chronic. Uh, relentless mediocrity that, that it, it Manchester like United, really, you know, and there have been a few of those over over the last seven or eight years. But this one seemed to be one of those ones. I think maybe that will go down as as a. I'm not saying it's going to anything's going to change out of it necessarily, but it just feels like the it was so bad, it was so insipid. There was the Ronaldo thing afterwards. Everything around like Ranić just seems like a bit of a joke figure at this stage. It felt like <laughs> like a really bad day amongst many bad days for Man United recently. And the, the, I, but the key thing there, I think the the fatalism there is this, what you said about you know it maybe not it doesn't feel like anything's going to change um, <laughs> because. Uh, like we, you know, the, the conversation about Manchester United has been so repetitive around, you know, what, whatever cycle they've been in, you kind of find yourself saying the same things. Um, but there was always that sense, okay, well, like you know, with Solskjaer, if they if they if they address this, then maybe they can correct it, and then what they do is temporary and just actually uh, postpones making any decision, and then you see how the decision is being done and 
the criteria that's being used and the you know the the the, the elements of it that uh, again seem to point to a club that really doesn't want re- doesn't want to um, to like to have to have to, to be confronted with their own failings in terms of the managers they want to appoint and you know it, when you keep sidestepping the managers who look like they are the kind of top quality the best managers available um and you know that you know that that becomes a pattern you have to ask it's more you know it, it really becomes something that is actually an institutional failing and i think yeah again we know this but um the more it goes on the more you see days like saturday you kind of ask yourself you know does anyone really have any appetite for it to change yeah, um, Mark, um, the situation with Eric Ten Hag, um, what do you think is, is actually happening there? Um, like, I mean, you see reports that, you know, you know, I think this is pretty much done. There were some suggestions that maybe he had offers in Germany as well. Um, I'm sure that if, you know, he's got offers from Manchester United and, and, and you know, a German club, He'd have to pick Manchester United because I mean, come on, you know, seriously, like, are you are, are you actually ambitious? Do you have any ambition in this in this game or what? But do you think that he is um, he is likely to be taking over? Uh, and supplement supplementary question to that: um, Are they going to have to get rid of Ronaldo for him, or is he going to be expected to lance that boil himself? Um. Look, I think I, I really hate making predictions on podcasts, but um, like I think um, it's likely. But at the same time, it's been underplayed somewhat to the extent that Eric Ten Hag, if you're in his position, he has options. His stock now is higher than it will be, you know, if he's kicked out the door this time next year by United. So he's got to put a lot of thought into this. Um, and you say, you know, obviously you take the job because. Um, of ambition and things like that, I, I, you know, it's not just ambition. If you if you wanted a, a good payday, you'd take the job, wouldn't you? I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons to take it, but I think, you know, it's not necessarily a fait accompli now that every manager would automatically and kind of unconditionally want to want to join a club like United. Because ah, it, I mean, it clearly is. Like, I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you're if you're a, if you're a 52 year old Dutch manager, you know, who's who's done well at Ajax. Like and and Manchester and you're offered the job at Manchester United. It doesn't matter if they're a chaos club at this point. You have to you have to back yourself to take that job because otherwise you, you know you could end up like Peter Bosch or whatever. You know, I mean, where is Peter Bosch? Who is he managing now? You know what I mean? Like this uh, this opportunity might not come again. Look, I, I'm sure. Look, I I think I think if it was me, if it was most people, they'd take it. I just I just think that United are in a position now where. The, the smart thing to do is if if you, you if you're Eric Ten Hag if you're anybody if you're in an interview with them you need to be interviewing them at the same time as they're interviewing you I think you need to be asking the questions of them in terms of the structure in terms of the question that you ask about Ronaldo you know um, you're saying whether it would be left to him I think like <laughs> I don't know if it would be necessarily left to anyone I think it's extremely difficult to to get yourself out of this this kind of situation that they're in now in terms of his contract in terms of the money he's on uh, where he would want to go who who would want to take him off their hands if indeed they wanted to get rid of him um, you know that's just one problem of many that the incoming manager's got to sort out and like really you'd want all those kind of lances boiled before before you stepped in there and I think that's the reason why you've seen some kind of 
um, hesitation in the reports about, about Ten Hag over the last couple of days. Good stuff, lads. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Dion. Thanks, guys. It's time to get busy in this motherfucker. Like we always do about this time. Okay, I'm going to reveal a piece of information now. Well, I, haven't, I haven't smoked a cigarette in four days. <laughs> What I'm saying is this guy, cheer up. How about you fucking wake up? Wake up. Wake up to what's happening in the in the world. Champions League this week, Bayern Munich, Villarreal. Ken. Will Ken give Bayern Munich a rat's chance of turning that one around? I expect Bayern Munich to be in the semi-finals though. Real Madrid, Chelsea, you've given us your... Well, no, you haven't, actually. You're saying... But I'm well, Mason Mount, have you, did you see Mason Mount's haircut? I did. That, man, that young man means business, you know. Mm. Farewell, Patrick Bateman. Hello. <laughs> Travis Bickle. I don't know. Early <laughs> Travis Bickle. First well, hour of the movie, Travis Bickle. Let it come to Man City. Let it come to Man City. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back Man City to, to close yeah, that one out. Sure. And Liverpool will get through against Benfica. Obviously, we'll be covering all that, all those games on the World Service this week. At, if you're a member, of course, secondcaptains.com is the place to sign up if you're not a member already. We did a deep dive late last week. Well, Ken did certainly very deep into Matt Letizia's latest It wasn't musings. that deep. I just talked about it for, for a few minutes. Well, it felt like about half an hour, but it was, it, was, it was good. It was, uh, it was a deeper dive than I had heard into Matt Letizia's recent, uh, recent views. Mm. And Mark Callan and Ken has heard more than enough. He says, thanks for covering the Letiz situation, in inverted commas, on the show so extensively. So, you know, Mark felt it went on. It went on. The requisite red there was of time ample too. coverage. Yeah, as one of a small number of Irish Southampton fans, I'd like to offer my thoughts. Uh, my age, thirty-six, and choice of team will probably reveal to you this man was my footballing idol throughout mm. my childhood. The goal that Ken referenced at the Dale against Man United was part of an amazing day for me. Not only did the little guy finally get one up over the big guy, but it was the first time it really felt like supporting an underdog was worthwhile. I was lucky enough to see the Tiz play in Dublin twice, once against Murph St. Pat's and the other in the infamous riot at Lansdowne Road. He was he lost on both occasions, <laughs> naturally, he says. Now, the recent descent into conspiracy theories has completely and utterly ruined him for me. A lifelong hero come undone. While I would love to be able to separate the man from the footballer, the two are so closely intertwined it seems impossible to do so. How can we praise him for his human qualities like his loyalty to his team, but ignore the utter nonsense that he has been recently spouting? It's an unfortunate collision, it would appear to me, between reaching a certain age and being A, bored, and B, overexposed to the internet that has led quite a lot of people down this particular path. The more access we have to our heroes and their thoughts outside of their sporting arenas, the more increasingly likely it is they will go and spoil their sporting legacy on us through their boredom in later life. (laughs) I'm now even contemplating chucking my two boxed and original Corinthians figurines of Latiz in the bin this evening. Uh, How has it come to this? You, you, You advocate against that, Ken. Well, I kind of feel like as though, you know, if Matt Letizia was doing this and like he was the only person doing it, you might be like, oh, this guy is, has really, you know, I'm very disappointed in this. But he's kind of, you know, he's he seems to be having some of the same issues as a lot of people have had. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's, I think he's a kind of a victim of a wider trend rather than, you know, a, a uniquely, well, not uniquely, but like, um, mm. I don't know. Am I am I letting him off the hook because he scored the, a lot of nice goals? 
There's hope. You, you <laughs> maybe to a certain extent. There's hope left. There could be hope. Oh, is left this for the most patronising possible attitude towards it? Forgive him, for he knows not what he does. <laughs> could I? Could I belittle him any more than than saying, "No, no, please, you know, don't throw away, don't throw away those figurines." Matt's like a lot of older guys. Uh, <laughs> now, maybe, maybe I've I've said enough about. Uh, poor old, uh, poor old Thanks, Mark, for the email on that one. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Thank Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow. I would not give Real Madrid a rat's chance. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.